I'm Gabby. Welcome to the My Possible Self podcast, exploring all aspects of mental health and wellness. Today, we are going to try and better understand eating disorders. Eating disorders are a distressing mental illness that is estimated to affect around 1.25 million people in the UK and at least 9% of the population worldwide. Eating disorders are incredibly complex and traumatic and can progress to become an extremely deadly and dangerous mental health illness, especially if not detected early. We are releasing this episode to coincide with Eating Disorders Awareness Week here in the UK. And today you are going to hear two very powerful and experienced perspectives to help me navigate through this topic. Gemma Oten is an actress best known for her work on Emmerdale, Holby City, and most recently, Coronation Street. She's also the patron of Seed, which is an incredible charity offering support and education for eating disorders, set up by Gemma's own mum and dad while they struggled to get the support they needed during Gemma's own 13-year battle with an eating disorder that almost took her life four times. Gemma is joined by Dr. Joan Brunton, Clinical Director of Eating Disorders at the Priory Healthcare, who has been deep in the field for years and treated hundreds of patients with a wide variety of eating disorders. Now, hear me out. This is important. I'm going to flag now that this episode may be triggering for some of you. So please, please, please proceed with caution. Full transparency, this has been the most difficult podcast episode for me personally to work on due to the subject matter. And listening back to the episode, I did find it a little upsetting at times. So I really do want you to take care when listening. That said, Gemma and Dr. Jones' passion, wealth of experience and dedication to bringing attention and information to eating disorders is really something extraordinary and their helpful guidance and advice for navigating through the landmines does make it compelling to listen to. So like I said, please continue listening with caution. And now let's proceed with the episode. I am a little bit nervous about this one just because of the um, oh, subject be. matter. I think, I think the thing is, Gabby, there's there's no right or wrong. And, and the point of it is, is that if there is something that isn't worded in the right way or, 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 or needs correcting, it's not a bad thing. That's only a good thing because that's the only way people are going to learn. That's true. I'm keeping that in, Gemma. I'm keeping that in. <laughs> Keep it in. Use it. Take it and run. Okay, so let's dive right in. Um, I'm going to start with a, a statistic. Eating disorders are a distressing mental illness that is estimated to affect around 1.25 million people in the UK alone. We are releasing this episode to coincide with Eating Disorders Awareness Week in the UK. As well as anorexia, bulimia and binge eating disorder, other eating disorders include other specified feeding or eating disorder and avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder. So I thought to kick off the episode, Dr. Joan, perhaps you could give us a bit more of a um, an overview and an understanding into some of the different types of eating disorders. Uh, yes, yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, 
I think there's, there's, there's quite a lot of eating disorders have something in common with each other. And then you, you can get a little bit stuck on the specifics of the behaviours that people use. So usually most people with eating disorders, whether it's bulimia, anorexia, binge eating disorder, the, the, there's an underlying low self-esteem and people feel really bad about themselves and and somehow they stumble upon using food to make themselves feel better and this is this is probably a feeling most people recognize and sadly most women recognize I think there's a statistic about 90% of women have dieted by the age of 14 or something ridiculous like that and for most people thankfully they have enough self-esteem to stop dieting or or to move away from the thinking about food to define themselves but there's a proportion who don't and it makes them feel better. And then they get stuck in um, a, a sort of a cycle really of adjusting their food intake and their body shape to try and help them to cope with the world. So it's really a coping mechanism, I think. And that's what a lot of people don't see. They just see it often, you know, it's vain people who just want to be thin, which is nonsense. And I'm sure anyone who suffered from it will say that. And also the other thing is when you're looking at categories, um, people move from one to another. It's not unusual for someone to move through different diagnoses. But when we try and work with someone, we look for the core low self-esteem and, the, and then we also at the same time target the behaviours that they use, which are things like restricting their diet, which generally lose, leads to losing weight. Or then pe some people find that really hard, thank goodness, to do. But then sometimes that can give in to binging and then people panic and then that can give in to compensatory behaviours like excessive exercise or purging or using laxatives to try and get rid of what they've eaten. So there's a lot of feelings involved, I think. It's it's not just about the food. And I saw um, Gemma nodding when you were talking, and I know um, from reading Gemma's story that some of this must be a familiar narrative to you, Gemma. I, I know that you had anorexia but then moved into bulimia. I think the main thing behind that, that Gabby, and, and together what, what Joan was saying, is that often the eating disorder is deemed to be cured when somebody puts weight on but actually anorexia only represents 10% of all eating disorders so it's all well and good and for me personally going into psychiatric units and being admitted to hospital and being admitted, admitted to eating disorder units and then being on a food plan and told to, to eat to gain weight but then nobody was ever addressing for me personally what was going on in my mind so every time I'd put the weight back on, I'd get shipped out and then I'd relapse. And then I'd find another way of letting my eating disorder take control. So it was a never ending spiral. And, and I think one of the big things for me is that food is the, is the symptom. It's not the cause, you know, and, and one of the things that we at SEED believe in is treating the person and not the eating disorder, because until the foundations of what was going on up there in the mind are addressed, the person is never, ever going to be free of that eating disorder and it will find a way. It's a very, very evil, destructive, manipulative uh, mental health illness and it will fight and it will fight those who the person themselves love more than anything in the world. But that is how destructive it is. Mm. With your story, and I was horrified to learn that your eating disorder was triggered at 10 years old. I mean, that is, you, you're a baby. And then this was an ongoing battle for the next 
13 years. Was your mind, was your mental headspace and you, again, you were so young, like, was that not addressed? Um, I know that you're an advocate of early detention. In that way, did the system fail for you? Yeah, sadly. My eating disorder felt like it, it just came and knocked me for six. Like, I... I I was a very happy girl, lucky young kid. I was a bit of a tomboy, uh, out lacking with the lads. Like I was not the girl in the playground with the pigtails. <laughs> I was the girl with the bowler hat haircut looking like Jim Carrey from Dumb and Dumber. Um, but I, I loved my life, you know. And unfortunately, as I went through puberty and my skill sets grew and I started to develop into a young woman, the dynamics in the playground changed and me playing block to Galileo with the lads was frowned upon by the girls because then came into play that game called Kiss Chase and then the dynamics with the boys and the relationships I had with them turned from sort of you know mutual mates to oh I wonder if Jen will be my girlfriend and, and it stemmed in the girls a green-eyed monster and and the power of their words really really affected me and the bullying was the hardest thing for me in the world to articulate because I wasn't being hit and I wasn't being hurt and I couldn't show any physical scars yet the words that they were putting on me and the things that they were saying about me was just awful and back then at 10 years old I didn't understand where this mindset and this shift came from I didn't understand why one day I stood up in the bath and turned to my dad at 10 years old and said dad am I fat I've no idea where that came from. And I think that's really important to get out there because I absolutely understand that the way the world is at the moment, social media is a big factor, but I don't feel comfortable when the conversation around social media says that social media triggers an eating disorder. It doesn't. It doesn't help. But I was 10 years old and reading Dandy and Beano. Like, I wasn't looking at those cartoon characters and wanting to look like them, you know. And I wasn't reading Miz or looking at Kate Moss, who was the supermodel back then. God, I'm showing my age. You know, I was quite independent of all of that. My family were very good at talking to me about the changes that a woman can expect, about embracing, um, you know, growing breasts and and even like the hairs on my legs and under my armpits and understanding where periods come from. Like it was no taboo. So I was completely open to that. So for me, it was really about something that I couldn't control what people were saying or doing to me, but I could control some element of what went inside me. So when my parents started to spot the warning signs and they were predominantly a light switch going out inside me, to be honest, you know, it, it wasn't sort of a quick thing of going, oh, Gemma's missed her lunch today. You know, we know she's not right. It was more about looking at me as their daughter and going, what on earth is going on? And when the doctor put me on the scales and said, sorry, she's not low enough in weight to have a problem, that was my life sentence. I, I I walked out of that doctor's. I've never been more ashamed and more devastated in my life, never mind what my mum and dad felt, because here I was at the start of an eating disorder and they were so hopeful that because they'd addressed it quickly, they would be able to get help and I was turned away. And within a year and a half, I was admitted to a children's psychiatric unit and told that if I didn't eat or drink within 24 hours, I'd be dead. And that was the narrative of my life for 13 years. I'd get fed up, shipped out, 
then I'd relapse. I'd get fed up, shipped out, and then I'd relapse. And I was failed. I was absolutely failed by the system. And, and unfortunately, I know things are improving. I, I do. I, and I know that there's a real, I mean, even us having this conversation is, is a turning point, but there are still kids and adults out there who are coming to seed in crisis because they can't get the support that they need. And, and it's not good enough. Well, this is Eating Disorder Awareness Week campaign aims to increase training and knowledge given to professionals. I think this is probably targeted specifically to GPs to help them spot the early signs of an eating disorder and not to, I don't want to, well, to. I mean, it sounds like you were fobbed off. I know we're going back, you know, quite a, quite a few years. So Dr. Joan, I hope things are, are, are changing and that the GPs are getting more training. Have you seen that? Or I mean, I, I imagine by the time they come to you, because you specialise in eating disorders, the people that you see are very poorly. I mean, I know there, there is a big move, the Royal College of Psychiatrists faculty is trying to improve training for medical students and junior doctors. I think most people, I think I had one one lecture on eating disorders when I was at medical school so there really isn't a huge amount of teaching although it's much more enlightened than it was and on top of that I think doctors are busier than ever and with with the recent obviously the pandemic and we're still in it is is resources just just have got stretched and stretched and stretched I mean, I don't know what it's like across the country. It's probably quite pick and mix. When I was working in the community, we'd have some absolutely brilliant GPs who set up spreadsheets and were monitoring their patients and working in complete collaborations. And we had other ones who really weren't quite sure. So there's quite a big campaign by the Royal College of Psychiatrists to get um, eating disorders put into medical school curriculum so that all doctors learn about it. So I think it's a working progress really and then it's it is quite an art to tease out you know some people will go through a little bit of a phase of losing weight and then it goes back on and then other people it develops into an eating disorder and maybe it's about helping them to see that you know if things aren't getting better in two weeks a month come back you know not not to give this message you're not thin enough or you're not bad enough because it's um it's like like Gemma was saying, it, it's often it's the psychological problems that drive the eating disorder. So you may not have quite yet lost enough weight, but you're going down there. And as soon as you lose an awful lot of weight, your, your brain shrinks. You can't think straight. It gets stuck in the same loops and it becomes really, really hard to help people to, to recover. So actually, if you get it earlier, you can treat people in a clinic setting rather than having to come into hospital and therefore you will save money but but at the moment it, it still feels and I think the pandemic hasn't helped is, is it's still quite you know people wait until they're quite poorly before they come in and then you need much more intensive treatment which then costs money so I, th I think it's really good that eating disorders awareness week are trying to get this message through I know beat have been trying to do it for a good few years certainly I was at a launch a few years ago and that they were making little cards for GPs to, to help them pick it up the government put more money into the young people services a few years ago which definitely got people seen much quicker 
but then the money sort of fritters out and then adults didn't get any money. And that's another pressure point when people move from when they turn 18, they don't miraculously change, but suddenly the services change because adult services have never had an increase in funding. Probably the best I can say it's a work in progress. And I think people are, there's a slow dawning of knowledge, but it, it's one of those illnesses that is still, I think, that it's very mixed the response you'll get. Mm. Earlier on, you mentioned about self-worth, low self-worth, low self-esteem being like a a common denominator in in various types of eating disorder. And again, I go back to Gemma's story of being 10, but it was the bullying, wasn't it, that like knocked you for six and then your self-worth and self-esteem plummeted. And again, I can't believe this would happen to a 10-year-old. That to me sounds very young. I'm sort of more used to hearing about teenagers and, you know, young adults getting a, an eating disorder. But in terms of children as well, is, is this more common than we would necessarily know about? I think it is becoming more common. I mean, I think the most common age of onset is 14. So it's it's young. And, and I think possibly as children are becoming more aware of growing up, girls are getting their periods earlier, I think children are generally more aware of society and expectation and identity and that they feel quite churned up and don't know what's going on and, and then they find this thing somehow that makes it better like Gemma said something to control that they when they can't control anything else so there's a there's a definite trend people are spotting that younger younger people younger children even are coming forward and my son's 10 and the things I hear from his playground are nothing like what was talked about when I was 10 they are talking about things that teenagers talk about and it is it is a different world and it does seem to be like Gemma said it's not it's not I watched this TikTok video and I got an eating disorder because thousands millions of people watch it and don't get an eating disorder so there's a vulnerability in the person usually whether it's um they've inherited some anxiety traits or whether they found a few years ago there's some interesting research that showed that people who are at risk of developing anorexia had a different metabolism and that they didn't respond to hunger in in the same way as most people so whereas most people would give in to their hunger people with anorexia can override it so they found this metabolic difference so if you can imagine there's somebody who's maybe inherited a few bit more anxiety and they're going through a stressful time and they when people are anxious they often don't eat because you get like a ball in your stomach and and you feel a bit sick and you can't eat and then all of a sudden they feel better and then they've got this thing that doesn't then make them like most people will they miss a meal when they're hungry later they'll go and eat a bit more they can actually override it and then they feel good because most people can't override that and it's probably not that conscious especially not the 10 year old but you can sort of see how it starts to snowball and and I, and I think it is something to do the children are becoming much more aware of growing up in the world younger and that seems to be the trigger for them developing eating disorders younger we are getting children as young as six coming to us now and during the pandemic there was a 68% increase in school-aged children coming to us for support as well um, from 2020 to 2021. And I dread to think what that is going to be 
this year. And and I, I, I'm going to be honest, I always I always struggle with with podcasts and interviews because I always want to be positive. I do, I really do. But I, I'm going to be really honest. I'm very very disillusioned at the moment. Very disillusioned. I totally support the work that the the Royal College of Psychiatry do. I think I think Dr. Agnes Ayrton is is just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And actually, she was the one who was in the West End Adolescent Unit when I was first admitted, and I met her for the first time on Times Radio with Hugo Rifkind uh, last year. And it and it just blew my mind because I, she was still fighting for the same thing, and and she understood. She got it. She was. Diff- I wish I wish she'd have been there with me because I, I literally saw her at the start for the assessment and, and the um when I was admitted and then obviously she went off and and you know did other things because she was so far stretched but she she understood and she is still fighting to this day for that early intervention and she's still fighting to this day to Joan's point about this money like where does it go because it's certainly not got into the front line quick and, and we at SEED, you know, the voluntary sector, and, and we're not a clinical service, we're not. We absolutely need the medical and clinical experience of, of, of Joan and GPs and, and Dr. Agnes Ayrton, and, and that, that education is so key. But we do deliver a service through lived experience, and you can't buy that, but we can't buy the manpower if we have no, nothing to pay people to deliver that service with. And we at SEED have been going 22 years now, and it was only two weeks ago that the CHCP crowdfunded and didn't renew our contract after 10 years. So in one hand, there's a, there's a crisis, right? There's an epidemic within the pandemic for eat disorders. And everybody's shouting about, you know, the government and, and, and the CCGs and the CHCP, and they're all going, well, there's this money and we need to help and we need to fix the problem. And then the next breath, We've just lost £25,000 a year. And we've just been told that unless we find £35,000 to pay the rent for our resource room, we've got no resource room on March 31st because of all the government, because of all the NHS funding, because everyone's reapplying for the job, because there's lots of change within the NHS. I'm sorry, but but I, I can't give a knack. There are people out there who, who are in need and there are people out there who are, who are at crisis point and dying. You know, last year... One of the dads that we were supporting, because we don't just support the sufferers, we support the loved ones. He was absolutely on his last knees trying to get the professionals where his daughter was to, to stop the medication that they'd given her. And then they went and sectioned her. And I, my mum and I, I remember vividly, we kept saying to him, you must, you must speak to them and, and say they need to start talking to your daughter as a human being. You need to be able to get to her because the more drugs that they're giving her and the more the more sort of sectioning and restraint, the more she's going to fight back. And also not even be able to coherently explore the issues behind the eating disorder. Well, she committed suicide. Right? And he won't mind me saying that story because he's out there and I won't say his name, but he's out there and he, and he is fundraising and he is working hard to make sure that his daughter's death is not in vain. But we were here again a year or so ago with Nicky Graham. You know, it, it, it's just, I know people are trying, but I just, I just can't fathom. And, and to Joan's point as well, she is so right. And I hate talking about money, but the longer we wait, the more expensive it's going to be anyway to, to, to bring that person back. 
So expensive on a person's life, expensive on the family around them, the carers who can't go to work because often they're told, well, sorry, we can't put you into the system because they don't meet the threshold, but it's probably best that you don't go to work and you look after your son and daughter. So they can't work anyway. So then they have to apply for sick pay or universal credit. And then a young person or an adult is made to wait until they get to crisis point, which to Joan's point, again, puts them in hospital and that's more money on the government and the NHS. Like, where where does it stop? Sorry, I've gone off on a rant, but I just, I'm right in it at the moment. And and, I'm the manager of Seed, actually, now, Gabby. Oh, Because my parents are, are, oh, no, 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 not not, not like in a, in a, way of like correcting me I just I just mean like the enormity of 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 the scale of of demand and and what's going on out there my dad's 75 and he's got cancer and my mum's 17 goes in for spinal surgery in two weeks like they can't run the charity anymore you know so I've had to step up and, and I'm glad I am but the things that I'm I'm learning and and unearthing and and I'm thinking this can't be happening it's 2022 you know, and then you wake up every day and, and there's something else going on in government that, that detracts away from the people that are in real need. Like, I'm so sick of hearing about parties and about slander and about, you know, slays and about, oh, apologise. Like, just stop doing what you're doing or grow up, man up and start helping the people you're meant to be helping as a government. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to actually chip in and say is it, it sounds like it's at a government level where significant change um, yeah. can be made. Would you agree with that, Joan? I mean, I guess you need properly funded um, services. That That's yeah. the issue. And, and, I, and I, 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 you know, it's, it's great. Gemma's here, passionate for eating disorders, and me too. But I, I guess there's hundreds of other people, thousands who are passionate about their thing as well. And yeah, I suppose somewhere they there's only so much money you have to give it to every everywhere correctly. But I, I do I, I do think that there needs to be a thought about how the money is used properly. Services have to be funded properly, and and there has to be a realization that this 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 is. A deadly illness and the earlier you capture it there's um research from the Maudsley something called freed and and it's not particularly fancy treatment it's literally doing what we all do but at the early stages before the behaviors get embedded because the, the problem is and it's awful to hear about that poor lady who took her own life is sometimes it's a little bit like um I don't know if you know Jenny Langley and the work she does with carers she's brilliant her son had anorexia and um she talks about how the anorexia sort of completely takes over the person and you lose the person that was there and if you're just fighting with the anorexia all the time you you lose the person and and therefore you have to sort of go about it sideways so you have to try and grow the person but at the same time sometimes when people get incredibly ill and they're left for so long there is nothing you can do and you do have to go into war with the anorexia in order to get to the person and that's when things like sections and medication I think can be helpful even though we always try to do everything else first but sometimes a person just gets so consumed that at certain points to save your life save lives you have to go in and take over really which is is a difficult one and I would say that when you do that, you then also always have to come around and yeah, you're better now physically, but we've got to do the psychological side. Because if you don't do the psychological side, 
it's a little bit like fixing somebody's bone in surgery if they've broken their leg and then expecting them to walk on it. They're not going to be able to walk on it. So the, the, the therapy is the plaster cast, it's the crutches. And until you help the person build new ways of coping with their life and their new body and building self-esteem, you're not going to get change and you're not going to get help. So there's, a, there's quite an, an emphasis on trying to have brief admissions. But if there aren't community services out there to continue the work, the poor person's just going to go downhill again. So I think it really does need thinking about restructuring funding properly. And I know Agnes is trying to actually continues the battle. I was on the committee it's with her amazing. for a while and she, she really does try. Do you not think, though, when somebody is admitted into hospital with an eating disorder, yes, you've got to go into battle or to war with the, you know, the physical, because this is when it is often life and death or heading in that direction. But then... From what I can gather, you, you need that psychological support as well to to really win, you know, to I, I understand about treating the physical. But I think that like when somebody gets hospitalized, there should be more emphasis on the psychological at the same time. And sometimes that doesn't happen. I know certainly in the adult services that there, there is always a, a therapy program alongside the um weight restoration physical program so there is always that attempt to engage and support and help the person find a, a new way of managing and you slowly hand back control to the person to learn how to manage that eating disorder voice at the point where if they mess up it's not going to kill them because the hard thing is right at the beginning if, if you don't take control of the eating disorder and they can't control it they, they, they might die. So that's the sort of thing. So, I mean, it's certainly in inpatient units, there is always specialist eating disorder units, there's always a psychotherapy component alongside it, which is a mixture of psychology and occupational therapy, arts therapies, nursing, medicine, and trying to be holistic. Now, sometimes there are only, I think there's about 350 beds in the UK for adults. And a lot of people who are very sick end up in medical beds. So when you're in a medical bed, unfortunately, all you can get is medical treatment and maybe your community team, but they should pop in weekly at least to review you and support you. And so, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And, and once a week, really, if you're, if you're taking the whole person's support system away from them and weight restoring, that person really needs 24 hour psychological care because it's such an awful thing. If you think of the broken leg analogy, it, 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 you know, they're in pieces. So that's why I think the inpatient specialist services work. I think in, in CAM services, sometimes there's an emphasis on family-based therapy and working with the family and that works for some people. And for some people, the young person feels a bit left out of it and they need individual work. I work with adults, so I know less about the cancer, the young people's services. But there should always, always be psychological treatment alongside it and intensive. If you're making someone gain weight, you, you, you've got to say, God, you're going to need a lot of help while you're doing that. What was your experience, Gemma? Shocking, really. I was admitted... Uh, given 24 hours to live and then the next thing I know I've got a burger soup pudding and a calorie build-up drink in front of me 
I mean, that's dangerous anyway. You know, like to to refeed at that level was was absolutely crazy. I can't comment on how things are now, but I know when I was in various eating disorder units and hospitals and the children's units, psychiatric units, I I just felt the whole system was all about reward and punishment. And I think that impacted me for the rest of my life. And that's why we've, you know, in the one hand, we've, we've had these cuts with the CHCP, but on the other more positive hand, I, during lockdown, uh, had a brainchild about uh, an idea called the Recovery After Recovery Programme. And the idea was that the recovery, it never really ends. And the risk of relapse, to Joan's point, actually, if somebody is discharged from CAMS and they've not got that support, because often there's a, there's a big leap between CAMS and, and the adult mental health services, and a lot of people fall between the gaps, unfortunately, but also the ones who don't meet the criteria to even get that help, what happens to them? So the Recovery After Recovery program was a twofold idea of we at SEED work with CAMS and the CCG so that if any young person comes to them, let's just say children, for instance, if any young person comes to them and they, and I hate the word threshold, but it, it, it just is what it is. And they don't meet that requirement. They're not deemed ill enough, which I hate as well, which is why I created the programme. They could self-refer to SEED and we can put them on the recovery after recovery programme so they don't need to go on that CAMS waiting list. And equally, when they do get discharged, the programme at the moment is 11 to 25, but my dream is that we get enough funding to be able to roll it out into adults as well, is that when they do leave these services, the recovery after recovery is there to help them deal with risk of relapse, to give them the tools that they need to deal with everyday life, to help them with a holistic approach of confidence building of, do they, do they, what is their goal? Do they want to go back to school five days a week? Right, let's look at that. Is their goal one day a week? Let's look at that. Is their goal that they want to go for an interview and get into employment? Let's look at that. Is their goal simply that they want to create more friendships because the eating disorder took away a lot of their friendships? So we are trying to, to think outside the box in terms of my personal experience of what didn't work in these units and what did work out of them for me personally. And what didn't work in these units for me was the whole reward and punishment scheme. You put on two pounds, you can do this. If you lose two pounds, you can't see your dad tonight. If you put on three pounds, you can see your dog. If you lose three pounds, you don't speak to your siblings all week. You know, like that mentality that I had to deal with for 13 years. And I, I know that a lot of people still have to deal with. If they don't have the care aside from it, because again, it's so complex. Like, like Joan says, you have to address medical risk. You absolutely have to. But then there's this thing around what my mum always says about weight versus state. You know, we've, we've, we've got to be able to, to, to separate the two when it all comes around to early intervention. The weight going down and this will affect the state of that person. So if we catch that early, we can address the state of that person without having to even factor in the weight and medical risk. But even then, it's a whole conundrum because, like, for me, when I had my heart attack, I, I was still 
you know, I still wasn't what you would call a healthy BMI. And, and I don't particularly like the use of BMIs, but it is what it is. But I had a heart attack because my bulimia was so bad. Now, anybody on the outside, if they didn't know, they wouldn't have a clue. Because, you know, I, I looked a normal weight, but the bulimia and, and making myself sick was depleting my electrolytes and my potassium was drastically low. And if it wasn't for mum understanding the warning signs, I, I wouldn't be here. You know, and that's the whole point. Like, we can't wait for somebody's weight to, to change. That's like my dad when he got cancer 10 years ago going, oh, well, they've just diagnosed you with stage three aggressive prostate cancer, Jen, but I can't get any help until I'm stage four. So, hey, her. Like, and I know I'm being flippant about it. And believe me, I'm, I'm inside I'm not. But it, it's just to make the point that we really need to value our physical health as much as our mental health, because ultimately the same thing can happen. Somebody can die. And you mentioned, like, again, going back to the, the early detection, which your doctor failed in, in that respect when, you, when your parents were concerned and, and first took you in. I don't want to say the what ifs, but like going on to live with an eating disorder for 13 years, like day to day, week to week. What is it like? What is it like being a prisoner in your own body? It's hell on earth. I, I just before um, we started recording this podcast, I, I watched a video that my dad did at our 21st anniversary gala last year. And he sums it up so hauntingly. And, and he just says, it's like they're a prisoner in their own mind. My daughter was was given a sentence. And the, the scary thing is, is that some people have life sentences. Some people get parole. Some people have death sentences when it comes to eating disorders. And that was what we lived with for 13 years, not knowing when the relapse would come, not knowing when the bad days would get even worse and I'd be hospitalised again. It is all-consuming. It is 24-7. It is exhausting. It is like you are never free. And everybody who is going through disordered eating or an eating disorder, and, and as Joan said, you know, ARFID, OSFED, binge eating, anorexia, atypical type, you know, there are so many different eating disorders, but ultimately it comes down to the person. And if they're living a life of just surviving and not thriving, they're not getting what they deserve. And, and I consistently say it, that they matter. And the earlier they can reach out, and it doesn't matter, you know, whether they feel confident enough to go to a GP, because as Joan said, it can be a postcode lottery. But if one way doesn't work out, come in and speak to the voluntary sector, you know, look at SEED, look at BEAT, look at First Steps, look at Supported, you know, in Scotland, look at Sweden, look at Saida. Like there are so many amazing eating disorder charities out there and also a lot of these charities including seed have wonderful websites where they can start a bit of self-help so if they're not quite ready you know to, to go to the gp or, or to speak to then their local community services there is stuff there you know and, and i i want it to be really clear that there are options there are avenues and you you do matter enough to explore them but ultimately to answer your question I, I wouldn't wish an eating disorder on my worst enemy I, I just wouldn't 
especially because look at what we're talking about our, our, the, the, the magnitude of, of the destruction it causes you know for, for for not just the person suffering but for the parents for the loved ones for the relationships for the siblings for the doctors for, for the Jones for the Agnes's you know it, it's not it's not like I'm sitting here going well none of them are doing good enough there are hundreds of, of wonderful wonderful GPs workers thousands of, of mental health support community workers who were fighting day in day out but it's destructive on their lives as well like that is the scale of it and, and I just I just don't want anybody to ever have to go through what we did I've heard you mention in interviews as well and um, you likened it to um, or compared it to a form of self-harm and I suppose when you're internally in that much pain I don't know is it like there's probably many different reasons but like I'll show you work this is something I can do I can sort of I'm sort of hurting myself but then I'm also sh you know like there's there's different ways I think that it can be expressed if I'm articulating this yeah right. I think I think with eating disorders the scary thing is is that it's it's not it's not just the eating disorder per se it's I've had depression uh, I suffer with anxiety even to this day I have to sort of keep my toolkit on and, and have my skill set for anxiety not for the eating disorder but definitely for anxiety I had a, a bout of OCD I got addicted to alcohol I got addicted to sleeping tablets like it, it, it just kind of like it rolls and rolls and rolls and this vicious cycle like, like Joan said about how it is a vicious cycle because if it's never addressed what's going on underneath we can't just like paper over the cracks and I think that's why you know even even if it's not an eating disorder that presents itself fully there are so many other factors that that can come with it and I think you know that's one of the things that we were very mindful of um at seed when we created an eating disorder educational toolkit about five years ago and that was my mum's idea because there were more and more schools and teachers coming to us who were concerned for the students and and we developed this online platform of a, a, a resource that schools can use to teach responsibly and confidently about eating disorders body image and well-being but within that when we put it together I remember sort of saying to, to mom and, and the teachers we were working with and, and the you know the psychologists we were working with, it's really important that we make this a toolkit that facilitates just being able to talk, you know, and, and it's not just about eating disorders. It's about any child watching the toolkit with their teachers and feeling like they're being bullied or feeling anxious or feeling like they want to do things and they can't really compute why they want to do them. It's about enabling them to have a voice, to be able to not feel scared and ashamed by that, but by actually going, okay, I understand that because this is how I've been feeling for, for quite some time now. So I, I do think it's really important to, to make sure that we cover all aspects of it and, and again with what Joan was saying about the the carers side of things where it's so easy to battle against the eating disorder but unfortunately the more you do that the more the eating disorder loves it and the more stronger it becomes and the more it fights back and that thing you were saying Gabby about that oh well I'll show you that's where that 
comes from. But when you go around around the side, I think that was the, the way um, Joan explained it, you know, around the corner with them, like, and go, what do you fancy doing today? Should we go watch a film together? I've noticed that you've you've not said this much today and you, you always say it like what's going on or I've, it just it's it's language like that and, and I remember mum oh I shouldn't laugh mum dad and I like we were at World War three <laughs> like like so many times there was many a plate that was thrown and like I, I we, we laugh about it now but at the time oh my god and people like look at us and go but you and your mum and dad are like that you know like you are so close but we worked for a long time. Like my mum and I, oh, oh God, I cringe. But they went and trained with Professor Janet Treasure at, at, at King's College and, and looked at the Maudsley technique. It changed their lives and it changed our lives. And they now, with the blessing of Janet, run a workshop called Walking on Eggshells because that's that's what it's like, you know, where you are constantly walking on eggshells. So all of those techniques people might think well that's just simple stuff but when you're in it it's not is it it's, it's not like, it really isn't is no, it no. i mean my mum um, oh yeah so jenny langley does the Maudsley model and she right. sort of picked it up and ran with it in the, in the south east but she's expanded because of zoom but it, it really is difficult to yeah. to do that rather than meeting it head on it, it, it's like it's going sideways it's keeping an eye on the risk but trying to find the person that used to be there trying yeah. to refine the interest not just being worried about oh but she really liked going to the shops but what if she's using it as an excuse to walk just go to the shops and try and enjoy it you know as long as you're not going on a 20 mile run it, it's probably quite a good thing and try not to mention the eating disorder but it's incredibly difficult what about do. mentioning food well everybody does it don't I mean that's the really hard thing. I always say to people it's like trying to if somebody's an alcoholic trying to teach them controlled drinking and anyone who works in addictions will tell you controlled drinking is nigh on impossible mm. but but with an eating disorder that's exactly what you're doing because you can't not have food but you constantly to recover you've got to choose the right amount at every single meal time at least three times a day and not do anything to counterbalance what you've eaten so it, it, it's a massive challenge you, you know if you're trying to recover from an eating disorder if you imagine it because food is a pleasure for most people isn't it oh how well, let's eat for lunch let's have a coffee and the poor sufferers are how am I going to get out of that one well I say I've just eaten shall I do this shall I do that can I come around can I come late can I manage a black coffee it, it, it's it, it is a living hell because everybody does food you you can't just cut it out and, and you get more isolated, don't you, Gemma? Because people then, everyone's walking on eggshells. So then the people who are less close to you just sort of move away, don't they? And, yeah. and, and you, you, you end up with you and your poor family just really stuck. I think, I think on the flip side of that as well, though, Gabby, when somebody is in recovery, but, but even actually in it, like everybody's individual, and we do hear a lot, and, and I do speak to a lot of people who actually... Do you enjoy cooking? I mean, I used to love cooking because I used to just be able to give it to everybody else and not me. But it, but but it is. I mean, anybody listening, like who's feeling like that, I, I I hope that makes you sort of smile because it's not a crazy thing to do. Like we are we are feeders, you know. We 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 are nurturers. Like that's that's what we do. And 
I think it's important if food is going to be discussed, let's look at cooking together. Let's look at, at creating a, a space in the kitchen that that is fun and safe. And, you know, I work a lot with um, a MasterChef winner, Jane Devonshire, and we came up with a, a little podcast programme called Falling in Love with Food Again, because it's really important that, you know, those who are able and ready are allowed to, to, to cook and, and to be in the kitchen and to have fun and to not think about the calories and to not worry about you know what's in it and when can I have it and when can't I to actually just go I'm going to learn to cook something new and I'm going to do it with my friend or I'm going to do it with my mum or I'm going to do it on my own with Jane and Gemma like it, it it's so important that again to the point if we don't give the eating disorder that empowerment to think that this this is everything and this is mine it's, it's bloody not you know, so but again, it's such a uh, it's such a difficult and 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 intricate and complex and and scary, scary mental health illness to, to understand. But recovery is possible. It it is, it really is. I'm curious to know what you both think about um Certainly, like I was living in America for a spell and you see it a lot, calories on the menus. And um, I know that's meant for people that, are, you know, need to perhaps lose a bit of weight for, for health reasons, especially where I was in, in like Tennessee. But I've also noticed it in the UK as well, this, this growing thing of like you look and then it's almost like because I'd be sat having a meal with my mum and my sister and it's like, what? That's got a thousand calories in it. Oh, we'll get something else. And yeah, for, from both of your different perspectives, I'm curious to know what you think about this like declaration of how many calories goes in meals when you're out because when you're out at a restaurant that is supposed to be a time of enjoyment isn't it it's quite a mixed thing it's it's a tricky one because on the one hand if you're very anxious a lot of people just avoid going to restaurants who've got an eating disorder because they can't bear with not knowing whereas they might go to chains where they know what they'll get and they'll know the calories more so sometimes it can be helpful for people but on the other hand I mean what our dietitians teach us is actually we really got to stop being obsessed with calories because calories is really bad way of looking at nutrition because everybody burns calories differently and not all calories are created the same so what they try and teach um, our patients here at Roehampton and I know it's a general thing across Priory Group is we look at portion sizes we try and use spoons we use cups we you know we don't use calories we say this isn't you know you have three sausages or something in a scoop of potato you don't try because what you might try and do then is I think what people who, who struggle with gaining weight will tend to do is they'll choose a tiny amount of the really fatty food, but they'll have the right calories, but effectively they're malnourished because they're not getting decent amounts of decent sorts of food. And then people with eating disorders might choose the less calorie dense food and to get the right amount of nutrition they need, but the apportions would be so huge, there's no way they'd eat them. So I, I, I think calories are a mixed blessing because that it's a quick and easy way of doing it I, I, I think test things have shown they're not really very effective at helping you lose weight and they're really not that helpful in treating eating disorders but I appreciate some people need the safety of them as a transitional thing 
on the way to hopefully being able to throw the calorie box away. I don't know what you think, Gemma. What, what uh, no, I, I, I agree. It is a difficult one. Um, but for me personally, I didn't know what calories were at 11 years old. Mm-hmm. But when I went into the adolescent unit, I was taught all about them. Mm-hmm. And it was the worst thing that could have ever happened. It, exactly to Joan's point, it made me even worse. Now, in today's day and age, you know, there's there's a lot of issues. I, I have struggles with the, the government's whole commentary around the obesity word because I get very, very vexed with the idea of telling people to go and ride a bike and start putting menus on uh, calories on menus, but not actually considering that many people who are obese, I hate that word, um, are struggling with an eating disorder you know so it's it's all well and good in in going oh let's get people to go and bike and get people to to read the the calories on menus but let's not even factor into the into the equation that these people might be struggling with disordered eating binge eating or an eating disorder so I think if they're going to do one thing they have to support the other and they haven't supported the other so I think what they've done has been very very dangerous for very many people and I just wish they would have put in some more consideration and thought around it however I do understand the transition that when somebody does know about calories within an eating disorder that is their safety crux to get through to the next bit but but again like Joan said being out in a restaurant you're meant to have joy you're meant to just go in and, and and just be like that that should be part of just being able to to do that and until that person's ready at least they have a choice at home if they if they want to stay at home and they feel safer there and and they know the calorie content but now nobody's even got that choice anymore you know so I just think things need to be a lot more considered around reactionary things like that Mm. I think it's what you both said as well about it goes back to the state of somebody's mind first Mm. of all before thinking about them physically. My Possible Self is a mental health app. So a lot of our users and not a lot of our listeners do suffer from various mental health illnesses. Certainly eating disorders is is a part of that. And Dr. Joan, it made me think, are people with uh, mental health illnesses, like Gemma mentioned before, she suffers from anxiety and bouts of depression, so if you are a sufferer of other mental health illnesses, are you potentially more susceptible to develop an eating disorder? Oh, that's quite complicated. <laughs> and there's probably several different ways. And what we often find is when people weight restore, when they do that bit, the physical illness, because I don't know, if, Gemma, you found it, that being very low weight or binging and purging, it can push your emotions away and, and, and can get rid of anxiety, can get rid of depression. And it's only when you stop doing those things that you get flooded with probably the original emotions that somehow triggered the eating disorder. So it's really important when people are recovering that you pay attention to all the different 
aspects of their mental health that it, it's like we do say to people and sometimes what people are wanting to recover is you might feel worse before you feel better in fact you'll almost definitely feel worse before you feel better but we're here to help you through that and you did really well you did the best that you could and at the time all you could do was weight loss or this or that and that helped you but we're here to try and help you find a different way through that whether that's through therapy to help maybe an underlying problem of we've got we're introducing something called radically open dbt to help people look at patterns of behavior which you see in anxiety and depression and ocd and anorexia where people tend to be a little bit rigid in their thinking they're quite perfectionistic and they tend to be very over controlled and like everything to be done a certain way so rather than just looking at food we try and help them look at that pattern of behavior which could then help all those symptoms that can come of being like that so sometimes people have a there's a general disposition to developing lots of different sorts of mental health problems and i always think it's better to formulate the person's problems and to understand them as a person rather than a set of diagnoses because it's interesting listening to Gemma say I've had OCD I've had this I've had that the other I would think poor Gemma's got you know put very simply she's got a whole pot of emotions which are really hard to manage and they come out in different ways at different times and what we've got to try and help with is with the pot of emotions and mm -hmm. try and help her find a way of managing that and I think approaching that way is is the best way to do it because if you start having multiple diagnoses unfortunately the way some services go you'd end up going to five or six different people and actually it's the same root cause it's just been expressed in a different way i mean i think a lot of people have you know pots of emotions and it, are there any like hacks or like quick tips you could you could offer that would help us in terms of when our emotions are getting heightened and it's becoming overwhelming um for me, when I went through all those different diagnoses and bouts, I don't even think I really addressed it with anybody. It was just something else that happened. However, at the start of lockdown, I was on tour, performing all over the UK, at a different theatre every week, living my best life, and then everything stopped overnight. Everything stopped, like it did for everybody. And I had no income. So my anxiety was through the roof because I didn't know what was happening next. I didn't know how to pay the bills. I'd, I'd come out of a, a, an abusive relationship the year before. So that all came rushing back to me. And, and I knew instantly, right, I need to pick up the phone. I need to call Sarah. Sarah's my therapist. And I need to start booking in therapy sessions with her. And, and, and that was something that really empowered me because I, I know that I have to deal with anxiety. But I also know that I don't have to deal with it on my own. So for me, having that therapy to, to just discuss every two weeks, because the question I get asked a lot is, but when you're going through those difficult periods, doesn't the anorexia and the, or the eating disorder like come back with a vengeance? And I'm like, no, because I am recovered, but I'm now in the recovery after the recovery process. So when eating disorder starts to, to sort of go, oh, hi, <laughs> let's have a go at you today with your anxiety. I put my hand in my back pocket where I keep the eating disorder and, and, I, and I, I sort of go, I acknowledge you. I can feel you. I know you're there, but that's where you can bloody well stay. And I know it sounds weird, but I, I, I just put it in and I give it a little feel. And it's like, it's all right. I know you're there, but you're not very nice. So that's where you're going to stay. But you are part of me, but ta-ta for now. So that's one of my 
coping mechanisms and also with the anxiety I often talk about my rational lens I can get so like consumed with well they've said this and they've done that and then I've got to do that and, and if I don't do this by tomorrow I'm, uh, this is going to happen that's going to happen and then I put my glasses on and these are my rational lens and even if you've not got glasses and you're listening just 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 pretend to put your glasses on I take a deep breath and I go right this is my rational lens stop catastrophizing everything's going to be okay if you don't do this by five o'clock tonight or indeed by five o'clock next week the world is not going to end it is all right you know, and, and, I, and I just, <laughs> my dog thinks that I'm crazy. Those are my two life hacks. My, my, my rational lens, looking at the evidence pot within that, and also just stabbing the back pocket and acknowledging and feeling, and that's okay. I love that. Uh, Joan, have yeah. you anything to add? <laughs> oh, I love them. I mean, I suppose one of the things that we would say is exactly what Gemma says, is the anorexia doesn't, the voice doesn't go away and it's evil and it pops out. But actually saying, no, I'm not choosing you. I'm choosing life. I'm not doing that. And, and I, I suppose from a physiological point of view, things like riding the wave of an emotion, emotion will always pass no matter how absolutely horrible they feel at the time. So sometimes you might need distraction from them. Sometimes you might go into your toolkit, something you've learned with a therapist. Sometimes you just need to pick up the phone and go, ah, it's all happening. <laughs> so it, it's trying really hard not to do the thing that will get rid of it quickly. Yeah. But will cause you problems in the longer term and trying to use your toolbox to find another way of managing that feeling because it will pass. It will be horrible while it's there, but it, it will pass. They always do. So hope reaching out, sharing is really important. Yeah. Um, as we're starting to wrap up this conversation, in terms of the road to the rocky road to recovery, Gemma, a turning point, can you look back and think that was a sort of milestone in terms of wanting rather than I know like you kind of go through the motions, don't you, when you're critically ill, but then that moment where you were like, I wanna beat this. Was there a, a turning point? Maybe? Yes, this is personal uh, to me. It's a sad tale, but also one that I was able to turn around. So when I was in um, the eating disorder unit uh, that I was in, after I'd had the heart attack at about 18, 19, there was a couple of things, a couple of key things. And, and the first key thing was, sadly, one of my best friends, took his own life while I was in the unit and I'd seen him the weekend before because I was allowed to go home that weekend and and he had said some things to me about getting better and please stop doing this Gemma and we love you and we want to see you get well and and then to know that the week later he'd not conveyed the same love for himself that he had given to me and also being at the funeral and and looking around me and thinking I am doing exactly the same thing, but much slower in right in front of my parents' eyes. So that was the first moment where something just switched in my head and it it made me think, I, I can't do this anymore. And even though my self-esteem and self-worth was so low, I just kept focusing on my parents. But the big step after that, even though these thoughts and feelings were there, I was really struggling because things weren't good at the unit and 
it got to a point where I was begging and pleading with my mum and dad to to discharge me or, or to take me home. And there were flashes of moments of, if I don't leave this place, I won't survive. Now, my dad did something that nearly tore my mum and dad apart because my mum did not want me to come home. The unit did not want me to come home. Um, but my dad took me home. And if he hadn't have taken me home, I wouldn't be here today. But that moment of him turning around to my mum and saying, Marge, this is our daughter, and turning to the professionals and saying, I respect your opinion, but my daughter's called Gemma and she needs us. And I'll never forget that. And at that moment, that was the turning point for me because I committed. My dad had taken the biggest risk, the biggest risk any father should ever have to take. And it was at that moment where I was like, no, no more. And I, I really worked on going. I went to therapy three times a week. I, I committed I, I unearthed, I unpicked, I slowly but surely got back into life with the help of my mum and dad and my friends. And that was my journey to recovery. And um, four years later, I got to drama school. And then the year after that, I got Emmerdale. So it, it, can, <laughs> it can work out, but it requires a lot. Like Joan said, it requires a lot. Sometimes it, it has to get really sticky had you just gotten to a point um in the unit where you were like I, i've got to get out of this environment in order to you know had they done everything that they could why were you suddenly so desperate to get out because unfortunately the professionals there weren't very kind to me um they were very very unkind to my mum there was a massive conflict of interest when she set up seed and started to question the system because she started to understand more and she was sadly cast out and it was awful. And the boundaries of my self-respect and what I deserved as a human being were often crossed. My suitcase would be searched you know I'd come back from a weekend at home and then they'd tell me that I had to have a meeting with the psychiatrist as soon as I walked in and then I'd hear unzipping of my suitcase and they had all my stuff out in front of all of the other inpatients it just wasn't I mean look bear in mind this is 20 years ago right just to be clear but it was it was the point of if I didn't leave that place I would be planning to do what my best friend had done and and that that was how how bad it got. So I'm hoping, Dr. Joan, that things have moved on quite some from 20 years ago and and um, Gemma's experience. It sounds like it has. Just from my just to back you up, Joan. I just yeah. don't want to think like it. You know, listening to you has been really really good and wonderful to hear with your the hands on stuff with with being with the person and not the eating disorder so please I just want to say before Joan says anything like this is in in correlation to my story and my journey and and why what we're discussing is so important just to say it's, it's good for people to know the two sides as well because then they know when yeah. they are seeing somebody good and then they know when you know because it's it's like Joan said earlier in the conversation it's it's going to be different wherever you are in the country 
not all units are fabulous and sometimes units do get stuck into a ridiculous dynamic with a patient and get over controlling and that's sometimes when we try and bring in second opinions and things now so it, it, the people do get stuck and part of my role as clinical director is that when people are a bit stuck we do we do meetings because that's one of the nice things is because we've got 10 eating disorder units in the priory we we've got a network to call upon and help we're stuck we don't know what we're doing we think we're getting over restricted but we don't know what to do we're really scared what do we how do we help each other so we we try and do that but sometimes when you're in a trust say a mental health trust you might be the only eating disorder unit and it's it's a bit harder to to pull people into that so I mean I, I you know I know we're not perfect but we do try really really hard to to find the person within we have um we have theme nights once a month where I think what was the last one was uh, Harry Potter and this month Alice in Wonderland and we encourage people if they can to cook something to have at the meal in the evening we decorate the place people get dressed up and we have games but equally if somebody's not quite there yet we'll try and find something for them to do in the game and then you try and get we do coffee trips we can go out we try and find you know putting golfing <laughs> All sorts of things trying to, <laughs> trying to find you know what makes life worth living because if you can't find what makes life worth living it's really hard to get better because when you're recovering all you feel is the bad stuff because it does feel bad because you feel fat and you feel horrible and you feel gross and you're not getting many benefits whereas if you can start to help people say well look what you can do now now that you know you're not at death's door and you know now that your brain's working a bit better and you, you know look what we can do that we can try and do this maybe if you can just see this little thing over here it's worth going for so i think units do try and be much more holistic and look at the bigger picture but i, I also know that places do get themselves tied up in knots sometimes which aren't the most helpful and they need a bit of help Mm. I've got one final question and thank you to you both for um, a really enlightening uh, conversation and it is great to get both of your different perspectives on on this so my question to you both is that again we're a mental health app so a lot of our users do suffer with various mental health illnesses say I am somebody who maybe is on the brink of developing an eating disorder or I have one um, but I've managed to keep it a secret so far I, I kind of think I need help um, but I'm frightened of reaching out like what what do you say to that person that's at that moment in time struggling reach out <laughs> you should you should definitely do it I mean if you're anxious I think the sorts of websites and support Gemma's mentioned are a little toe in the water of trying to to find out and, and if you've got that awareness that oh god I'm I'm using food too much to make myself feel better, it, roughly speaking. It's different for everyone, but that's often the, the feeling. Well, I'm a bit stuck in, in this. If you reach out and start reading, that's often a good first step. If you're already in therapy, mention it to your therapist. They, 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 they won't fall off their chair. You know, therapists understand these things. Um, and, and there's lots of support out there. I think, and also do mention it to your GP because I think whilst there are some that are less enlightened, there are some that are very enlightened. And, and I think people I think what doctors have got better at saying is, well, I don't know much about it, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you. So really don't keep it to yourself because it, it, it will fester and get bigger. 
Mm. Yeah, I think early intervention is is so, so key. If you're not feeling right, no matter what the magnitude of, of that not feeling right is, you deserve to feel the best you can possibly feel. Um, I would say, please don't feel ashamed. Don't feel like there's a stigma. There are people out there like myself who have got very big gobs when it comes to eating disorders. And, you know, and that's the point because we want to normalize the conversation and we want that conversation to enable change. And I think it's so important that anybody listening out there who is struggling and feeling like they don't matter, that there's there's three people here who are saying that they categorically do and they deserve the best possible life that they can live brilliant thank you you've got your own career as, a, as an actress and the, and the fact that you're you've, you're taking on this after you know going through the bloody ringer and your family for so many years the fact that you are so passionate about helping others is just it's you know truly you're an inspiration Gemma so thank, thank you. you that's very kind and thank you to you Dr Joan as well I know you're a busy lady Oh, you're welcome. I hope, I hope some of it made sense. <laughs> it, it absolutely did. You're both fab. Yeah. All right, Thank darling. you, ladies. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. How are you doing? Are you okay? I know that was a heavy podcast episode to listen to and thank you for making it through to the end and thanks again to Gemma Oten and Dr Joan Brunton for spending so much time talking to me for a really important conversation on eating disorders now go make yourself a brew take care and I'll see you on the next one I've been Gabby bye for now